the Tech Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next hour we will be talking about all things tech. I'm joined by my fellow presenter Steve Griffiths, fire and rescue expert. Hi there Steve. Well, expert's probably pushing it a bit too far, but (laughs) yeah, Yeah, from a past life. From a past life. So we're going to talk a little bit about your past life uh, for a few minutes Um, and then we're going to sort of go over to our lovely guests today who are Debbie Forster. CEO of Tech Talent Charter, and Eric Staff, who is MD of IoT as a Service. And before we go over to our guests, though, um, Steve, just just describe a little bit about your your previous job before you're retired now, aren't you? Well, retired's uh, a sort of broad term. No, no, no. In terms I've of got... you're retired from that job, though. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And uh, up until three years ago, I was working for a fire and rescue um, responsible for operations. And part of that is actually managing technology and looking at what there is new in the market to actually take into that quite a demanding environment really for fire mm. and rescue so uh yeah we we've seen huge changes probably in the last five to ten years uh huge steps forward about remote operation so the ability to be able to fight a fire but perhaps not put people at risk so that's, that, that's trying to do things more remotely then that absolutely as opposed so. to what used to happen is, is you just you just send a load of guys in really and and and, and girls risk, and of course sorry <laughs> yeah. and, but risk assessment being quite difficult you just go in yeah. and, and and have to make judgments while you're there yeah so you're operating remotely with crews going forward and personnel in the position of risk and sometimes you wouldn't know the conditions or the uh, uh, spread of the fire that they were facing or the mm. emergency so by using tech you can get a better idea of temperatures fire spread. Uh, how how just how risky it is to do that and then you can apply different technologies about remote operation remote sensing or even uh, attacking the fire in a different way so is that is that that you do that when you arrive so so you've got a whole a whole bunch of people who will go there and then they've got a, a whole lot of equipment to, to actually assess yeah so telemetry is a big thing for fire and rescue so to be able to know the temperature of a firefighter i.e their core temperature or the temperature in the room that they're actually in gives you a good idea of the spread of fire and by able to geolocate those around the building and actually look at the conditions they're facing but it's just not in the building you've got things like thermal imaging you've got remote cameras you've got drone technology and even robotics now which is fantastic Mm. so before if you had to go into a crash structure you know like a collapsed building you know a lot of that work was done manually by uh, staff tunneling in now actually it may be better to be able to locate somebody through uh, very, very sensitive sounds. But actually, the best ones to locate people were dogs, actually, yeah, and they still yeah. are. And they still are, But yeah. you're putting those animals at risk, and, and so technology's playing a huge, hugely greater part in how but, we do so things. So how, I mean, I know you're very modest, but, you know, you were, uh, you know, a, a, a commander in the fire service. I, I mean, how many staff do you have? A good few thousand, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, when, when you're at one of those sorts of... I don't know what you call it, events, let's say. Yeah, incident. If yeah. you know that there's people there, though, uh, and you're desperate to get people in to try and save them, how do you, do you hold back until you assess everything? Or is it just, no, those, there's people in there we need to really help? It must be really difficult decision-making. It's, it's like security. It's like cyber security. There is a scale of risk and there's a scale of control mm. so that you would change that dependent on the likely outcome. But you're never going to 
maybe, I don't know, but you try not to put people's lives at ultimate risk to rescue. The whole point is you'll push it as far as you can, but to be able to push that risk level, the sliding scale, mm. is to know what the condition is they're facing inside and, and how, much, how dangerous actually is it that they're yeah. facing. And how much autonomy do you have to actually make those decisions? Because I know Oh, that total. I mean, the, the... So nobody sort of... The, the, the tower tell? block, you know, Glenfield, Glenfield Towers, hmm. they had the person in charge had autonomy about making decisions. What but what they do is they share and, and a bit like developing new technology, they work together as a team to say, I think it's this, do you concur? And there's a written log that says, We've taken this action because these are the control measures right. and these are the, these are the anticipated risks, mm. and that would be the same, I suppose, as cybersecurity. You know, you have a, a sliding scale of security, yeah. uh, dependent on what's the likelihood, what's the outcome. Can you balance the two to to, to push it? And, yeah. and quite clearly, they did. I mean, there was a huge amount of bravery went on. Uh, there to rescue people that sure. undoubtedly would have died. Yeah, and 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 it must be very difficult though because every situation is different. And I know you've 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 done fire and rescue on on ships in the Channel as yeah. well as buildings as yeah. well as, as as car accidents. Um, it must be really difficult to judge all those different things. And is technology playing a part in that? Yeah, I mean, you know, twenty years ago, you'd turn up at a factory and you might have a piece of paper that said, "Oh, it's a a chemical plant or whatever," mm. and these are these are the possible chemicals you'll come against now you've got in-cab technology so that you can actually interrogate en route and that will say right these are the five first things you need to know because what what happens you get information overload you can imagine oh here we go there's a chemical plant here's 30,000 things you need to know yeah and actually that's worse than it's having worse. no information almost so what we have is a tiered approach that says right first people on the scene these are the five key risk things you need to be aware of and five th key hazards, let's say, for instance. Right. And that's all flashing up en route. And once they get there, then actually then you get more involved and more detail coming through. But what, what is the key about incident command lifetime is not becoming overwhelmed with information. Yeah. It's actually filtering and pushing it away to get the core information. Mm. And, um, and, that's so that's, and technology really can help with that. Of course, of course. Now, uh, Debbie Forster, you're, you're a CEO of Tech Talent Charter. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about Tech Talent Charter? And, and, and listening to Steve there, it's important that we have a really good balance of all different sorts of people who can help us with those sort of risk analysis, isn't it? Absolutely. I think at the Tech Talent Charter, this is a group of employers who have, are tired of just talking about the problem and looking to a solution. It's looking across, and if you have less than 17% of your tech staff who are women and women in technology, then you are looking at half the talent pool and you're looking at half your user base are not part of those discussions. Yeah. And that kind of problem solving with that dearth of, of talent is, is just not smart for business. And does that mean that the problem solving isn't completely in the round? Because in terms of cybersecurity, we were just um, discussing this before we went on air. If if the huge majority of systems have been designed by men, then actually women will make the best hackers because 
they haven't thought about how women think and how women approach stuff. So in essence, that's a very weak area. Absolutely. And if you're going to get a hacker, get a woman. Absolutely. I would say. And it's a job opportunity I wouldn't necessarily recommend for all the women there. No, but there joke. is there yeah. is a job down there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think if you look across, it's security, it's health, it's Internet of Things, it's wearable. There's not an area in which we don't need to understand the whole user base, and that's women. And there's all sorts of fantastic stats that talk about the commercial edge that companies will have, the the strategic edge by that in the round understanding and we do talk about diversity in its fullest sense because it's not just women Mm -hmm. but by tackling it through that lens it gives you a practical way to really think and moving it beyond one kind of person designing fixing working across the system and and um i know you know a lot of people might say well it's people being biased at the recruitment end although i know so many people are trying desperately to get women to apply for jobs and they're not applying for them so if we can't get women to actually go into these areas and apply for them it's really difficult as an employer to employ women because they're not applying so so is that what you're finding at all and this is what's really important what we're doing at the tech talent charter is we're accepting the entire pipeline is broken and that's from early inspiration in schools that's for recruitment that's for onboarding retention return to work retraining the whole piece is broken and it's why we don't just have employers in the room on the tech talent charter is also the recruitment agencies it's also the organizations that are reaching into schools for early it's everyone working together stop focusing on the problem and let's start looking at solutions and i think the exciting thing that companies are doing is they're sharing what's working instead of treating it commercially sensitive yeah i can imagine yeah I mean, because there are lots of other industries that have faced the same problem, say, 20 years ago, and they've been able to overcome and have Absolutely. a far more diverse workforce, which gives them better decision making, you know, better team working. You know, are there areas where you've looked and learned and, and seen how that can apply? There's some fantastic stats. And part of what we do at the Tech Talent Charter is employers are signing up that they're going to commit to do something about it internally, but they're willing to share best practice and to share data so we can begin benchmarking. And when we talk about tech, we're not just talking about the tech industry. So we do have signatories like Cisco, BT, HP, those sorts of that you would expect. But we also have Nationwide Building Society. We also have global radio. We have little tiny tech startups up to your multinationals. And they're sharing what works, whether it be changing your job descriptions, whether it's looking at how you use telephone interviews. It's what you do for coaching and mentoring within an organization. It's being willing to open your books, share what works, what doesn't work. And in startup fashion, hack it, try it, measure it, and pivot from there. And it's the industry, it's broken so deeply. The only way the solution can be found is if everyone's working together. Steve, um, in the fire and rescue service, um, you know, I know it's quite controversial uh, because uh, quite a lot of the job is still physical and you need to be strong and all well, that sort of stuff. to a certain stuff. extent. But, so, you know. so uh, and I know you've you worked quite a lot on diversity yeah, uh, in fire sure. and rescue. Uh, what were the, I and mean, this was a little while ago, I know, what were the problems there? Because again, well, because, I guess it's, with, it, it's, it's the, perception again, isn't it? I mean, exactly. Debbie knows this. It is the core point is people see firefighter stereotype you know, guys stripped to the waist, muscles everywhere. Oh, well, really? Does yeah, anybody think that? Yeah. Surely not. <laughs> and we know that's not the reality because we have teams that have got... Well, look people at you, look, Steve, yeah, for exactly. a start. <laughs> so you've got people who are five foot four, people are six foot four, all different ages, all different backgrounds. And actually it's overcoming that initial reality. Because if you said to most young boys around who, who had a tech mind or would always say, I want to go into tech. 
Yeah. There's probably very few uh, females that would say, you know, that's what I see. They might say, I want to design something. I want to develop and something. The and, and in fact, we were unbound a few weeks ago. Mm. And actually half of the app developers were women. And it's if you start with this idea of talking to girls about what it does, not tech for its yeah, own sake, but the problem, it, the problem it's going to solve, helping them move from being consumers to creators to see that creative part in the problem solving that is at the heart of great tech. So is it about vocabulary then? In it's, some ways. It's vocabulary, it's it's the imagery we show, it's being able to talk to both boys and girls. You need to normalise it across the piece so when the 10-year-old girl says, I want to go into tech, the boys don't look across and think strange. You need to change the minds of parents. It's it's a long process and it's showing the next step. It Girls seeing the university grads. It's the university grads looking at entrants. It's the entrants looking at middle managers to really start getting a deeper, wider sense. And it's exactly what you say. It's breaking the stereotypes because sure. they don't do anyone any favours. No. So, Debbie, this, this, is a, this is a hugely long piece of work, isn't it? And, and not just taking little sections of it. And yeah. it's, it's, as you said right at the beginning, it's from end to end. And, and, I, and I guess you're going to be pretty patient because that's the only way to do it. Eventually, that, that will pay off. And I think the key here, um, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't even talking about gender diversity as a problem. Seven years ago, we were still arguing that it mattered. What happened about three or four years ago is I think we ran the risk of starting to reinvent the wheel. Lots of people out there trying to come up with solutions in isolation. What's happening now is we're about connecting the dots. So when I talk about Tech Talent Charter, we're not going to do it all. It's not just companies sharing what they do. This is Tech UK in the space. This is looking at the British Computing Society in the space. It's everyone coming together to go on that long journey together and connect the dots all along the way. So for you, what would success look like? I mean, that's you know, are, you, are you measuring or are you just doing some perception work? It's crucial. Because yeah. well, like I said, we're not looking for a magic bullet. There's not going to be one solution. No. And what we're very open about is each company is going to start addressing this problem differently. We don't prescribe what your plan is, but we say you have to have a plan. Mm. Data is the key. So what we're going to be doing is annually, all signatories are agreeing to give us data that is aggregated and anonymized. So this is not a name them and shame them. This is not a leak table. This is benchmarking that allows us to start looking and seeing where success is coming and for companies to be able to look internally and break through those those misconceptions of oh it's it's this bad all over no they can see where those are happening and by measuring that data we want to see across the piece we'd like to move towards whenever a company shortlists for a role there's a woman on that shortlist not who makes the final decision who gets the job but that women are starting to be in that room on that list and then we'll see that going but, across. But, but isn't that sort of positive discrimination? Do, do you think that works? Because a lot of people say, well, from a female perspective as well as a male perspective, I don't want to be on some shortlist because I'm the token woman. Absolutely. So that's a really difficult thing to get around, isn't it? Because unless we do that, we're not going to get more people on there. We had a really great interview a couple of weeks ago um, where they were talking about a lot of their staff were saying, and there's the male staff saying, I'm not coming to speak at your conference unless there's, there's women on the panel. So, you know, don't ask me. And, and I thought that was a really interesting way of doing it um, because it was forcing the people who organised the conference to then 
get around it and realising that actually and, other people are noticing. And this is the push. And, you know, what I'm pleased, what I hated for a while is whenever you walked into a diversity thing, it was a room full of women. Where are the men? And so Tech Talent Charter is, is men and women. It's accepting when we say women, we don't just mean white middle class women. It's pushing across that whole piece and starting to say things aren't good enough. It's why we're mm. delighted that the recruitment companies are in the room because yeah. there's that there's that push back and forth. The recruitment agency says, what do we do? The companies don't take them. Companies saying, what do we do? They're not putting them forward. Get them both in the room. And by starting to measure the data, you need the, we will force people to start looking and doing things differently, looking beyond yeah. the old pathways of recruitment, looking into different places, thinking about women retraining, thinking about moving across, how return to work at peace. So it, it's, a, it's a long, slow journey, but an exciting one. And, and, and Eric, um, in terms of the Internet of Things, um, I'm, I'm, you know, for me, if, if we just talk about domestic situation, I know we're going to talk later about the sort of industrial application of Internet of Things. Um, at home, I know that a lot of that stuff's been designed by a bloke who definitely hasn't had a, ever cooked a meal. Yeah. Or, you know, my fridge doesn't open the right way. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a cooker at the moment where the, where the smoke detector's right above the door. I mean, who did that? Somebody doesn't cook, obviously, doesn't cook sausages anyway. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of household goods, hoovers, all sorts of stuff, where I know that that person who's designed it is a man because they haven't ever used it and what they've done is they got seduced by the technology but actually haven't looked at the at the you know the sort of practical application and i am exaggerating but but um do you find that am i just having a little rant as a middle-aged no woman? absolutely I, i'd say that um a lot of the applications or solutions that are out there in the market has often been sort of okay i've got technology what can i do with that technology and then inventing something around Gone it back and, it, yeah, and more often not it's probably been guys doing it um, but I think, as you said, there's very few people or there are not many companies who really go back to the core what I call the core insights, which is the, the customer need. And it looks at, um, for example, the woman perhaps in the household or whoever, whatever you're doing in that situation to make sure you design a, a solution properly. Mm, I'm um, not saying that men don't hoover because obviously some men do. But 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 if it feels to me like somebody's designed it who practically has never used one yep. you know that's that's my issue and it, it could be a man it could be a woman doesn't you know it doesn't matter but you've got to have those insights haven't you and you've got to make sure the technology applies across genders and works for both people they're crucial absolutely crucial i mean i i uh, one of the companies i used to work for was telephonica and pretty much the whole company was run around insights it's all in the understanding the customers the yeah. whole base was segmented into i think at that time um, it was five main segments um, and you had rooms that were all made up to, to actually sort of experience their lifestyle, how they live, to understand mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose as you as you sort of advance that, now it's almost down to the segment of one. Because mm. if you're truly internet connected and through IoT, um, I should be able to really understand your specific requirements because you'll, you'll be very different to everyone else. And that could be somebody elderly who, who you know, is, is vulnerable, all, all sorts of things, isn't it? Yep. And, and Debbie, how... How do we get women into not just IT, but, you know, science, you know, product developments um, that make such a massive contribution? Yet it feels like 
I don't know. There's a reticence, and I don't really understand why women wouldn't find that interesting. I mean, engineering, you are literally guaranteed a job if you go and get an engineering degree. You know, why, why, why? And I think it goes back to, it's against stereotypes. You know, I think from a very early age, women are presented with stereotypes, and tech and engineering is a geeky, male-dominated, isolated piece. We've lost that sense of creativity, of making, of doing, of those sorts of things, and solving problems. There's a lot in the press, and, and rightly so, of where the conditions for women are difficult. I think there's a lot of research as well around confidence. A lot of women, one of the areas is confidence and the, the mentality, the way that advertising of jobs, etc., for, for jobs is based on that big confidence and women step back instead of stepping forward. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think the pinnacle of engineering is probably Formula One. You're seeing actually quite a few women coming into formula one whether they're race engineers or engineers within teams and designers um so that is happening but it won't happen overnight there's a slow move and you do see it now uh, there's a couple of race engineers in formula one that are female which is you know the pinnacle of of, of uh, the actual engineering side and that's slowly coming through and so they become role models they become and people that's that and slowly it comes through and it's not by i think one problem is some industries when they think they're going to go women they do what we call pinkifying things and softening it you know it's not going to be hard Bobby and it's not it, it is and it, yeah. it's, it just makes i think for most women myself included it makes your blood boil and it puts you off even more embrace that there's challenge but show women doing it and then within organizations really grow and nurture those women to take the next step but i think showing that next step showing women surviving yes women are going to want to go into sport into driving into those messy great things it's not about making it pink and pretty it's showing how women can do it because i know if i was designing a new shopping experience based around artificial you know augmented reality the majority of people I'd have on the development team would be female because actually probably 70-80% of those people are going to be your target audience. Well, women are good at spending well, money, they, let's face well, it. They're better at spending money than men. You know, <laughs> my retail experience takes two minutes. I need a new T-shirt bought. Whereas I know, being in a household of women, it takes a long time to decide what you're going to buy. And there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of time goes into looking, looking again, searching again, searching again. And of course, that is a. You don't con- understand any of that, do no, you? No, I don't understand, <laughs> and that's why I shouldn't be let near any any development that's around retail. Yeah. But the reverse is true as well, isn't it? There are some some environments and some things, you know, where women are quite predominant. And Absolutely. Actually, you know, and I think teaching is a bit of an issue. Particularly You're talking at, to someone at, who used to be in education, and again, uh, you if know, you look you, in primary schools, absolutely. where are the men? How are we making them feel yeah. welcome? How are we making them see that's a good career path? Any industry will be hampered if it is dominated by just one gender, one gender because it will it will be a disconnect with the people they serve and work with whether they're users patients stakeholders you name it their ha- diversity everyone wins when we get diversity right yeah so sorry, t- sorry just a question um if, if, if do you think there are any learnings from um, when you look at sort of women's football um because in my mind when i grew up then you know no girls played football um and suddenly in the last 5 years it's huge, phenomenal. Everyone's yeah, into it. Totally. Now I think even a third of all registered players are women. 
Um, and it just, I haven't really thought about it and how that happened, but it's happened you, you so tip, quickly. You get a tipping point, don't you, Debbie? Yeah. That's and, that's, and that's where you work through, because, and it is about looking at that whole pipeline, because that was happening as much as what was happening at the media, at the professional level, but down at grassroots in schools and encouraging girls into that piece and looking at the next step all along. This is where we go back again and again. You have to connect all the dots and look at the whole pipeline, because it's a broken, leaky pipeline. Mm -hmm. The same was true for sport for women. So we're going to have a little break in a minute, Debbie, but just tell us what you do, what's your role and, and, and how can you help organisations? Can they come to you? Absolutely. So at the Tech Talent Charter, it's a very um, easy, low entry point to come in. Companies join. We've got lots of paperwork, but it's a 10 minute join once you have buy-in. Really, companies are agreeing to what I call people, plan, practice and data. So a company agrees that they're going to have a senior person in the organization who takes ownership, that they're going to have a plan that internally is, is public within the organization. So they sort of have a champion internally. They have a champion, yeah. they have a plan, then they're sharing that practice. Now, for some company, that's sharing case studies, that's speaking at our events, it's putting things out, blogging about it, etc. And then it's that data, sharing it through. From that point, the companies are just coming from everywhere. We're pushing towards, we have a big event in November at the Gherkin. We're on course for our first 100 companies who are joining. And what I love as a CEO is talking to companies who are coming back and saying, what else can we do? Can we sponsor something? Can we share something? Is there something else that you need? There is industry and appetite amongst women and men at all levels across this to really reach that critical mass and start really moving the dial on gender diversity. And what would you say to somebody who's running a company and going, oh, it's all fluffy, that's all rubbish? I mean, what, 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 because you I've, must get I've a lot I've had 20 of that. years in the fire service of, of people, people saying, saying that, that. Yeah. and the strongest teams were those that had a mixture of men and women on them. But how do they you demonstrate? They were the most open to change yeah. and the most open to collective working. And if you had a male-dominated team, it became almost feral if you didn't have a really strong leader. And that's that's the reality of it. And the, the mixed teams were by far the strongest. But you, there are downsides to having just female teams, though, too. Oh, yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, diversity yeah, full stop. Yeah. And there's some cracking data out there mm. on the changes to revenue, competitiveness, etc. And it's not saying because they had women. It's no. about industries it's mixed, that moved yeah. beyond yeah. having one preponderance of one gender. Yep. When they move across, they're profitable, they're competitive, they move up in that and structure. A, and a mix of ethnicity as well is a really really strong and powerful thing and have, diversity yeah. full stop yeah. and again it's why i always say it's not just white middle class women either it no. is about really but what we say is is by focusing on gender the practices that you do there benefit diversity full stop so, so you sort of learn from that absolutely and you, you would advocate that as your first step before you before you go even wider uh, well i think and it varies from company to company in yeah. bigger companies where they have the bandwidth to do that working across and i love working with those companies where it's part of that fuller and i love the way the distinction starting to move from just diversity to inclusion yeah. because once you start about inclusion it's not just getting them in the door it's keeping them there and building and growing them within the organization not a bolt-on i think that's true of all things in technology as well when it's bolted on from the outside or seen as a quick fix it always falls off it always of fails. course it does because it's it's a bit of a sham but really. if you put it at the heart of what you yeah. do get those internal champions and then start driving through and measure it with data that get rid of that excuse culture or maybe that's good enough, you really see the benefits. 
And um, if any listeners want to find out more about that, they need to go on to techtalentcharter.co.uk. Lowe's on there. We're going to uh, obviously come back and talk to you again in a minute, Debbie, and also to Eric. Um, in the meantime, we're just going to have a little break. Um, and I went off to the Tech Accelerate show with uh, my co-producer, Dan Hawkes, uh, a few weeks ago. And we spoke to Armand Didier, that's a great name, isn't it, of Cassendi. And we were talking about commercial mixed reality. Let's hear what Armand's got to say. So we're at day two of um, Tech Accelerate at the Excel Centre. Um, I'm joined by Sue Nelson. Hello, Sue. Hi there. Some great stuff here, isn't there? It actually is mind-boggling. I, I think it's amazing, some of this. So we've got, we've got artificial intelligence, we've got robotics, we've got virtual reality. We're just submerged in all this stuff today. It's fascinating. I haven't had a chance to have a good look round yet, but I'm going to have a look round soon, and it really is a big show. Um, we're joined by Armand Didier from Kazendi. Um, morning, Armand. Um, perhaps you could tell us a bit about Kazendi and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. So, um, Kazendi, so we are a lean innovation studio based in London. Uh, so, we are specialised in developing apps for the HoloLens, uh, so for the mixed reality uh, uh, market. Um, we also uh, specialise in fast prototyping, so which means we develop uh, an app from idea to uh, a usable uh, product in two weeks. Uh, in two usu- in two Just weeks. say that again, in two weeks, yes. wow. So yeah, in two weeks we uh, meet with the clients, um, get their, their requirements, and in two weeks time we develop the app uh, that shows the basic principle of, um, of what they want. And you work a lot with the, um, the Markster Holler lens as well, don't you? Is, is there a particular choice where you went down that technology? Um, well, it's, um, it's well developed <laughs> first, uh, but we are, we are not related at all with Microsoft. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, just a choice here of technology. Um, and, that's, and that's because they've, they've, they've ironed out quite a lot of bugs and they're, they're a bit, bit further along. I mean, personally, I'm not a great fan of Microsoft and I try and avoid it with, you know, as much as I can, which I'm sure I'll get loads of Twitter <laughs> harassment for that. But, 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 but as far as you're concerned, that, at the moment, that's the best technology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, so what can um, uh, mixed reality through the HoloLens offer us that, that, that sort of straight VR or um, doesn't? Well, uh, as the as the name says, it's mixed reality. So you're not you're not anymore in a in a virtual world uh, where where you you escape completely uh, your closed environment. Suddenly, you 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 bring some virtual elements uh, into into the room you are in, uh, into the streets you 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 walk in. And, and it gives actually, finally, uh, a, a, a wider dimension than just having a, a, a completely uh, virtual world around you. So, so um, I remember watching the James latest James Bond film, not the last one, the one before. I know you're looking at me quizzically here, Dan. Um, thinking, where is this going? Um, and uh, I, I remember that 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 the that the, um, the director and the producer deliberately decided not to use CGI because they really wanted to create this feeling that you know that, that he was on the motorbike and he could die any minute, and it was all sort. Of, you know, and I think there's, there's, I think there's some really interesting things about that. And then, of course, so many of us are so used to to having CGI, which, in my mind, is almost where mixed reality is. In that you've almost got a film, and then you're you're enhancing it or adding to it with CGI. And it's the same with virtual reality and augmented reality, isn't it? You've, you you're, you're immersed in this world, but actually, augmented reality, if you combine it with that, can add some some interesting characteristics. But like the James Bond film, you don't want to go over the top because actually it starts to become unreal. Does that make sense? 
Um, yes. <laughs> you don't know how to reply to that. No, 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 no. But, but I think what, no. what, what, uh, that's where the skill with somebody like you lies, is, is making sure that you use the best of the technology, yeah. but actually it's a great experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the aim is to have uh, some... Yeah. I would say the difference between like movies and, uh, and what we do, mixed reality, is that... Um, uh, well, mixed reality, you, you leave it. So, 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 yeah, it's way more. So, there's no like, um, it's not like using CGI is a kind of uh, cheating, like for movies, like you, you said, the James Bond. Um, in, in mixed reality, uh, using this is actually uh, not, not using uh, CGI, is, would be cheating. You see what I mean? And, and, and what you're doing is, uh, what you're saying is you are completely immersed in it. And I think what, what a lot of the film studios are trying to do is trying to work out how they get that virtual reality experience when, when you go and watch a film. And they, I think they're still struggling with that, don't mm. you, Dan? It does seem like it. And, and um, 3D doesn't seem to have taken off. It's still you know, just a bit of a gimmick. So but also, we're British. We don't like sitting there with those stupid glasses on. <laughs> this is quite embarrassing. <laughs> I wear glasses and all my glasses are stupid. <laughs> I did think that. <laughs> so, so recently, um, uh, Microsoft launched their new super fast um, Xbox one X confusingly named uh, and it's and it's you know it's got super fast processing power it's got um, 60 frames a second I think you know um, uh, graphics processing um, but in the launch they didn't really mention anything about VR and they didn't seem to sort of mention having uh, you know like the, the Sony VR they didn't seem to have a VR option do you think this is that they're moving that there's a move away from that and so mixed reality is going to be more in, involved in gaming or do you think they're missing a trick um, no, maybe they. I, th I think they will just take two two different paths. Um, so I think it's so. Before what um, what would be used to do like um, several uh, several applications uh, in games or VR or whatever. Uh, now they actually take different paths and um, to fully uh, be developed in, in their field. And what's the uh, what's the most? Uh, I, I, you can't actually mention a client because you might get into trouble. What's the most exciting thing that you've been working on recently that, that you know you're, you're really proud of? Hmm. Um, well, obviously every project is exciting because uh, it's like no, they're all different. So we've worked with uh, uh, data visualization, uh, brand awareness, uh, operation. Um, so I, I guess every project has its own difficulties and its own uh, challenges. Um, yeah, so... I think you need to work for the diplomatic service, Armand. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just wondering, so um, what sort of, what sort of um, uh, sectors are you working with at the moment? And, and, and is that range of sectors expanding as more companies um, are, are sort of wanting to embrace what, what can be offered through sort of mixed reality? Um, so actually we see more and more uh, of data visualization uh, projects coming in. Because um, I think, uh, so at, at the beginning there was a lot of uh, more like brand awareness projects. Uh, okay, you, you see uh, uh, holograms, it's like visually really attractive. Uh, but now they, they start uh, to realize that it, it offers uh, new ways to, um, to, to, to assess data, to uh, explore data, and, to, and for example for businesses to, to take better decisions and faster. Uh, so yeah, data visualization is definitely a uh, emerging market. That's the future. Not only do you need your data, you actually need to explain it really, you know, really easily, don't you? So, excellent.
Okay, so um, thank you very much, Omol. Um, perhaps you could um, tell us a website or something where people can have a, um, find more about Kazendi? Sure, so you can go on uh, kazendi.com and uh, contact us anytime if you need a, a mixed reality app. Omol, thank you very much. And that was um, Armin Didier of Kazendi. So we're back um, on the Tech Talk show. We've just been having a really lovely chat with Debbie Forster, who's got an MBE, actually. Um, and uh, we're now going to have a, a good old long chat with Eric Staff, who is Managing Director of IoT as a Service. Um, just explain exactly what Internet of Things is. Can you explain it in the domestic setting, but also industrially? Sure. Um, the Internet of Things is basically connecting up anything that's not connected to the, to the internet today. So it's all the physical objects around us, and that could be from a smoke detector, could be to your toy, your car, to your industrial machine, anything, any, any assets that's not connected to the internet. Right. Uh, and in terms of what that means from a domestic point of view, that, that could be, you know, if you look at someone like Hive, uh, British Gas and Hive, um, you basically install your little sensor or thermostat, and, and you set that, and... Um, you leave your house and when you get to, to uh, within, say, two, three mile radius, uh, the heating will be turned on. So by the time you get home, you've got a nice warm house. At the same time, it will turn, turn it off when, when you've left. So you're saving money. Um, that way, British Gas delivers a better experience. The customer's happy um, and, you, and you're saving money at the same time. And I suppose from an, from an industrial point of view, you know, there are huge uh, opportunities. If you look at the wider um, Internet of Things, it's valued by McKinsey's between um, four to seventeen trillion dollars um, by 2025. So it's an uh, it, it's a huge opportunity. I mean, for me, my I've got my light bulbs connected through Hue, whatever it is. You know, That's so a that gimmick. I, it's it a gimmick. just a gimmick. It's so gimmick. I can say Alexa, switch my lights yeah, on, yeah, sure. and I just get a bit of pleasure but, out of that. I don't know why, but there's something about it. I feel like I'm like God. Actually, but, I feel in control. Uh, Eric, the, the key to that is the light bulb manufacturer knowing how and when you're using them. It's the feedback, isn't it, from data. that device, the data that comes back. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and a lot of the companies, I won't mention names, but a lot of the companies who are involved in this today, actually it's a bit of a Trojan horse into actually getting that data and knowing exactly, seeing what spikes are taking place I've in gone the off house. it now. I've gone <laughs> completely off it now. I didn't realise that they're tracking when I'm in. Yeah. That's not a good yeah. idea. Is it? Well, they are. They must be tracking when I you're mean, in. Hive is probably the best way for British Gas to understand peak load and low mm. loads mm. because they're getting all that data back, aren't they? But what? Steve, I'm fine with that. What I'm not fine about them is, is what Facebook oh, yeah, and Google do know, is yeah. use it against you, yeah. actually, to advertise yeah, or do I know, whatever. I, I don't want any of that. I might review my lighting Your light usage. Anyway, that, that aside, um, what's what's much more important, isn't it, is, is trying to connect businesses so that if you can imagine how much you would save in a, in a domestic setting, you know, if, if you organise yourself properly, you just imagine what businesses can, can, can do, and, and particularly factories, I'm thinking. Yeah, absolutely. To be honest, it's, um, it's, it's every single vertical there is, um, from, um, you know, I'd call them the dinosaurs of the, the, um, in terms of, you know, finding new innovation in the insurance industry. To, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure in, insurance in, people will be thrilled to be called well, dinosaurs. <laughs> um, um, to health, to manufacturing, to pharmaceutical, to everything. Everything is involved. So um, I'm struggling. I, I can see it in a domestic setting. I can see examples in a domestic yeah. setting. But tell us, tell me a little bit about commercial. So, say for instance, healthcare. Are we? Is that everything from remote monitoring to operating a bed remotely? Or I don't. I can't. 
sort of get my head around how, how that would work in a health setting? Sure. Um, I can give a couple of examples. Um, so if you start with the insurance industry, because I think it's actually quite interesting because the insurance industry typically is very, very conservative and they tend to be the last to move. Um, but what's happened over the last couple of years, I mean, I, once upon a time I was a young driver um, and the insurance premium was a huge. So nowadays, um, basically, you've got some new players coming up in the industry who are basically putting a little box in your car. Um, yeah. And through that box, um, they're able to ident- basically identify how you're driving. Oh, God, so, please don't let me have one of those. So, no. the, so the advantage of this is that um, you get three calls, basically. Um, the first call is to you as a young driver. Um, more often than not, uh, not without being sexist, probably a boy uh, who's driving like a boy racer. So first call saying, if you continue driving like you are at the moment, you're likely to have an accident and you could even kill yourself. Second call is to parents. Third call is to cut you off. That way, they have reduced the claims by 30%. Um, they've increased the sales because actually they're attracting the right people um, yeah. and they're able yeah. to offer better, um, better prices. Won't get you on that, least, Steve, would they? Won't no, get your insurance on that. At least the, 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 yeah. the child is actually alive. Yeah, and that's why my daughter, when I'm driving her car, says to me, Dad, stop driving like a boy. Because <laughs> she said, I've got a black box fitted, don't forget. So I have to drive a lot more sensibly. Like a, like a district nurse when you're <laughs> yeah, driving her Yeah, Miss Marple, she yeah. says. Yeah, drive like Miss Marple. So, so that's just one example. Another example is if, if you look at, um, you know, trains, um, you know, look at British Rail or Virgin Trains, etc. If you look at Trend Italia, which is the equivalent in, in Italy, um, they've gone from, you know, typically you take a train out of, of production or, or service uh, you've got a, a certain slot when you serve as a train um, they've changed the whole thing to stick sensors on everything everything to do with the train and they go and proactively service it the sales have gone through the roof because the trains are on time um, they've re- reduced their opex costs by eight percent which is huge and wow. the customers love it because the train turns up on time Virgin, though, still don't manage to have any hot water or make tea every <laughs> other trip I've ever been on. But um, so, so that's that's one example. But there's, there's there's other examples of how you interconnect, you know, from end to end. Let's say in a factory, so so that you've got you know purchasing coming in one, you know, say raw materials coming in, those being monitored in a much better way, and all the way through it being manufactured to deli- packaging delivery. And there's much more sort of interconnection, isn't there, uh, happening at that, that that side of it too? Absolutely, and and, and I suppose really the end go, um, goal from from an internet point of uh, internet or things point of view is is to be part of a system of systems. Um, mm. So you can you can take a tractor, you can make it uh, a uh, connected tractor, um, you can add uh, analytics to it, so it's a smart connected tractor. Um, but then if you start plugging that into the um, you know the fertilising systems, for example, um, so how much fertilizer do you need yeah. but it's really when you plug that into the fertilizing system and the watering system and the weather system and, and all the other systems that's when it sort of comes to uh, comes to life but it's very difficult i wouldn't recommend anyone starts with that because you have to do it in yeah. really face because otherwise it's almost like you're trying to boil the ocean from day one yeah but but it, it can't it's going to have a profound effect isn't it when people really get the hang of it and i think what often happens with these developments is People do a little bit of stuff in their house and suddenly start to get it. So if you know that you can do that with your gas bill, you know, whatever, then you have a mindset, you've sort of tamed it in a way, you've domesticated it in a way. Once people do understand it and tame it, it's then much easier for them, isn't it, to go into work and actually realise that it can have a real effect. Otherwise, it's actually quite difficult for you to sell, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's going to have such a fundan- fundamental effect. Um, in the Internet of Things is, is really one of the biggest enablers and, and digital disruptors out there. Um, when I first started um, in this business, if you look at um, John Chambers, who's the CEO for Cisco, he sort of said that 40% of businesses will be out of um, uh, business in 10 years. 
I was very skeptical. Now I believe that more. Every what just because they're not going to improve or yeah. use IoT for efficiency? Absolutely, right. absolutely. So let, get, let me give you an, an example. So there's um, if you look at the um, people with breathing difficulties. Um, traditionally, they used to drag around two massive gas canisters. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and which is not great when you've got a breathing no. problem to start with. No. So what's happened now? If you, if you go back almost two years. One company or some really innovative new companies have come up with basically reduced that in size by probably about a third. So it's one third of the size. But it's got all the analytics on that. So they can uh, you know, change the medication that's given to the, pe- uh, to the uh, patient based on how they are feeling. And all the information is then sent back to the healthcare trust so they can monitor that. Now, that, those companies who, who don't get involved and who might have that big you know, gas canister, they'll be out of business so quickly. It's such a big change mm. that's taking place. Um, and, and that will really that will be but, a big threat for many companies. You know, one of the issues, though, that I find is that public procurement, so if you take the NHS or fire service probably and all sorts of others, is that the procurement documents are based on people in that public sector organisation knowing what they know yep. and not knowing what they don't know. Yep. And therefore, they're often actually setting um, criteria that are, are the old gas canisters, right? Yep. Now, we come across a lot of people who've done some amazing technical developments for the NHS, cannot get anybody to buy it because they're not specifying it, because they, they just don't know it's going on. Yep. So they're specifying the old criteria where actually there's huge amounts of technology out there and it's not being used. Yep. Everybody's screaming about, you know, we need to have more money in the NHS, what needs to be more efficient. But actually what's happening is at the procurement level, that they just they just don't even know what's going on. But yeah. isn't that because within public service there is always this focus on scale and lack of risk, and any Absolutely. great innovation yeah, comes from looking at small pilots with risk, with manageable risk, and then scaling upwards. Whereas too often we're forcing our public services to make big decisions, big procurement, and so they'll always retreat. But and we punish failure very very strongly. It, it, that, that wasn't really my point, Debbie. I think what I was saying is if you're saying that we need a we need a home visit service. Right. So so here's the procurement document and we need 50 people who go round, la, 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 la. You know, that's what but you have to respond to. Whereas somebody will say, well, actually, I can do that with two people back at there and then this will happen. And then if, if somebody's got a problem, we'll go out and we'll do that. We'll do it in that. But the document isn't written like that. So they can't even get on the procurement list. And so they're constantly, you know, I'm not, I'm, I know this is a generalisation, but they're constantly procuring the wrong thing. But I think uh, what I'm saying is because the thinking goes in wrong at that procurement level, right. because it's only thinking at the big scale, therefore r- mitigating against risk, whereas you need that second strand. We have these giant sledgehammers being thrown at walnuts where great innovation is going to need to build in that propensity to be able to go in at procurement level for those mm. smaller pilots to do proof of concept that they can then scale up. That's the only way you're going to break that, that Back I mean, that. one area where I've seen lots of change was dementia within yeah. the care of dementia and using technology to help people. And it could be everything from, you know, loss of appetite. So you promote appetite through use of timed uh, uh, smells. So people would that would prompt them to eat. But linking in, in that to IoT is huge. But trying to get that adopted across the whole of the NHS is, yeah. is virtually impossible because... 
people cannot get clinical trials. It's too costly and it takes Very too risk long. Adverse. Yeah, yep. absolutely. It's and the cost for private companies is huge. Yep. Trying to get it, get it actually in front of the mm. healthcare professionals to actually specify. Well, one of the biggest challenges that we see in, in IoT is the fact that close to 50% of people don't know what it is. And, and that, that's yeah. across public, and to come back to your point too. It's got a stupid uh, name for a start. You know, public <laughs> and private. So very much what we focus on is actually, it's about educating the companies of what, what it really means. If you dumb it down and, and then really exactly. explain what it is and yeah. what the opportunities and what, what it entails. Um, because, and, and it's not just... Um, a, a common mistake is that this is uh, this is for the CTO, this is for the CAO. Absolutely mm. not. No. This is just as much for the demand generating mm. part of the organisation, the sales, the marketing, the operational parts. It's for all parts of business because actually that's how they will come together and, and develop. It's a helping solution. people see that it's a tool. I think this is the problem. Once something gets plugged in, we move it into this other mindset. It's a magic bullet. It's something. It's something other magic that CTOs have to deal with. It's helping companies and individuals understand the tool what it does, what it can't do, what its potential is, and then how to use it and putting it back then into the people who design solutions, not the technology. But the tech people have to spend much more time explaining what they do in simple language. Taking them on the journey. They must do that more often, I think. So, so we actually, what we say is, uh, um, what IT as a service um, focus on is really helping to maximize the commercial benefits. We don't, uh, to be honest, um, technology is just an enabler. So we don't even talk about technology. It's about understanding the insights, the needs, and the key issues and opportunities, and mm -hmm. from that, defining a strategy. And then the technology comes in to enable that. So is that the first area you focus on? when, If a, if a company comes to you and says, look, yep. we're struggling with IoT and how to apply it into our business, yep. that's the first area you go to about yep. commercialization, i.e. The need, yeah. What's the, the, what's the issue? Uh, what's the pain point? How can we? It could be that the customer experience is not great. It could be that you got a big, um, you know, hole on your P and L. Um, you got a massive cost. Like, um, take for example, um, British British Rail. They spend three hundred million pounds a year going around checking embankments to see if there's been movement. Mm -hmm. We've got people running around doing that. Well, yeah. that's a completely ineffective way of doing it. A couple of, oh, no. couple of sensors in, you you saved probably two hundred ninety eight million, and you're yeah. a superstar. Yeah. So, so your your business, does, can somebody bring you in and say, "I've got this problem. Can you help me?" You, you know, is that is that is it often that they have identified? Yeah, very know, much so. It, it, it tends to start in. Um, we have probably different phases depending on where the customer is on on, on their sort of journey. Um, the, I suppose the first point is around learning services and helping companies to understand what IoT is. Um, you know, how big is the market? What's happening in segments? What are the key trends? How is my business model going to change? The second part after that is really um, defining a strategy. Uh, it's not about technology. We don't even talk technology at that point. So it's about defining your IoT strategy. It's like strategy. your normal, normal corporate strategy. Well, yeah. and, and, and often that will be about income and sales or, or how the market's going to shift in five years' time and you've got to be prepared, yeah. that, that sort of yeah. thing. And then the third component is then basically, okay, I now know what it is, I know what my strategy is, and then how do I execute? Because that's yeah. where it can become very challenging. If you look at the IoT ecosystem, there are thousands of players and you've got interconnectivity issues, etc. So then it's about helping to define what that proposition will look like and executing on it. And there's presumably going to be a mismatch between the current talent and the future talent that you're going to need, a, a significant mismatch. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. There's um, one of the biggest, once again, problems in, in, in IoT is that um, what IoT does is bring together people um, from a, well, you've got two sets, two camps, um, the IT camp, and we all know the IT managers and the, and the OT guys. And 
it's basically by bringing those two worlds together. And, and typically there's very, very few people out there with that skill set who can understand that and, and, and able to deal with that. So there's a massive shortfall. We talked about cybersecurity, uh, yeah. similar shortfall to, to that. Debbie, there's there's a real issue about digital skills. I, I know you, uh, you know, exercising you, uh, particularly in, you know, the next three to four years. Brexit's not helping. Your views? We've got to go deeper. Um, there were some breakthroughs in education and how we're trying to do it, but I still think we, we went at it focusing on the how, not the why, the problem solving. And I think we're still we're still going to feel that. And with Brexit bringing through that t- pipeline, getting more and more strangled, we have to go back to that core problem solving, understanding tools, and then demystifying it. Stop talking about it in language that no one understands and isn't accessible. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a dreadful, awful statistic here, which is there's a looming digital skills gap, can't even say that, where the UK needs one million more tech workers by 2020. Now, that's three years' time. Staggering, and if you look at the stats that talk about the number of jobs that won't require digital skills, so it's both a skills gap and that we have people who are going to lack those core well, it's skills to access a any kind of job. A retraining program that's needed, because actually, by saying tech skills, what actual tech skills do you need? Do you mean because yeah. are they, you know if you've got machine learning, you've got all those things there. Actually, what are the skills we need? Is it data interpretation? Because the metrics coming back from IoT will yeah. overwhelm a company, won't they? So you know, I mean, it's absolutely. Yeah. I, I think from a from a, certainly from a data point of view, probably well, it's hard. It's difficult in that it can be difficult enough for a company to launch an IT solution. But probably the the most challenging aspect is what to what data are you looking for because it's like a needle in a haystack. Yeah, uh, and finding that information. I think, you know, similar to what you said before about but I think in one a of fire. The, are we going to have the skills internally, though? Are we going to have to, go, are we, I, are going, to, have to bring them into the country? But I think there's a, there's a deeper core skill, because if we only aim for that problem that's coming in three years, the next problem coming down, the next skill set, the best thing we could do across the UK and skilling up people at every age is learning to learn. It's how to pick up new skills, build that resilience, build within companies and within ourselves as individuals that we're always now going to be retraining. We're always going to be needing to pick up that new skill set, whether it be learning what IoT is, whether it be about the machine learning. What, you know, it, It's problem solving and learning to learn. If we give that to people, then we can keep ahead of the curve. But so far we've been going very, very specific. Let's teach people to code. And, and it's done. not all, because coding may not exist in three Machines years can time. take that over. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. So it is, it is more about, because we're always going to be preparing people for things we don't know what they are yet, because it's coming faster and faster. Yeah, I mean, so people, learning people to learn. won't believe that, I'm sure, and, and say, no, that, that's ridiculous. But, you know, I'm you know getting on a bit. When I first started work, there were no computers. You would sit at your desk with a pen and, and an a abacus. paper. Very funny. <laughs> but you'd have, you know, people would have letters. You'd have a typing pool. You would write out what you wanted and then you'd send it to typing and pool. It and get carbon paper. You get that back two days later and then you put in an envelope with a stamp and send it off and that's how you communicated. Now, I'm not that old, but, you know, like, 
the whole working environment has changed. Now, if you consider that in my lifetime, what on earth is the working environment going to be and how do we prepare for that? Because the change is even quicker, isn't it? We've, we've got to build that resilience with people of just expecting change. And is that no just, making them be- just, just making sure they're equipped with really good problem-solving skills, analytical skills, you know, being able to do strategy that Eric was talking about, those types of skills. cooperative learning and cooperative working. The old days of working in isolation are gone. And unfortunately, we're mm. still in an exam system that says ultimately the sign of success is that you sit by yourself in a in a hot summer oh, hall. Oh, right? or, or not, as the case, my case Debbie, would be. Yeah. don't get me started on the exam system. <laughs> um, just uh, returning to you, Eric, because you can't believe that the programme's nearly finished now. I'm, t- I'm terribly sorry about that. Um, uh, where can we find out more about that? Is it uh, IOT as a service? Dot com. That's it. Okay, so if, if you search for that on Google, you'll find uh, find Eric. And, and that's about going in and helping people really view and understand the future and prepare for it yeah. and work out how you can make your, your business more operationally efficient. That's right. That and it, it just happens to be IoT that's one of the things that would solve that, that problem, but there's all sorts of other solutions uh, too. That's right. I mean, I, IoT captures so so much in terms of digital transformation. and it's um, We basically help companies from a, if you want to learn what it is, if you want to develop a strategy, if you want to develop the proposition, if you want to go and execute that. Um, but it covers... It's, it's the whole nine yards, basically. It's an end-to-end solution. The whole nine yards. Does that include um, security yes. as well? Yeah, because mm. that's a big issue, isn't it? So security is huge. Mm. I mean, we're in, we're in the middle of a, if you ask me, perfect storm. 70% of companies were hacked last year. Um, you've got companies who have monitoring, 24 by 7 monitoring. I'm not talking about McAfee or whatever here. Uh, it's about less than 5%. You've got the GDPR coming in next year with a 4% of your global turnover at risk. And you've got companies like, you've got IoT devices coming in, where if you look at the company like Target, um, someone put up an HVAC system, uh, sorry, um, ventilation system, they got hacked, and, and that cost is now estimated at $1 billion. So it's huge. God, I'm all completely scared now, yeah. completely yeah. scared. So if you don't know about IoT and you don't know about cybersecurity and you're running a business, you better find out pretty fast. Um, um, thank you very, very much to Debbie. Uh, Forster, and uh, don't forget uh, you can check her out at her website and if you just go on to techtalkshow.co.uk all all the contact details will be there and thank you also very much to Eric thank Thank you you, Eric that's right thank you yeah you scared the pants off me I can tell you (laughs) I'll just say it's an opportunity personally yeah well there you go that's the difference between us Steve Um, you've been listening to the uh, Tech Talk show and we're now syndicated to dozens of radio stations across the UK and further afield Uh, I think we're in California now and Kent Coast and Manchester and Michigan, Malta, all sorts of places. Thank you very much to my fellow presenter, Steve Griffiths. Cheers, Steve. Uh, a pleasure. And uh, if you want to recommend any future guests, someone doing something groundbreaking in the tech sector, get in touch with us via Twitter on at Tech Talk Show UK. Or if you just want to slag Steve off, please go on there as well. Um, and uh, we've got hundreds of podcasts now. Uh, if you go to techtalkshow.co.uk, you can, uh, you can catch us on, on there. So have a good week and uh, worry about your yeah, yeah, cyber security. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> have a good Switch week. Switch off those light bulbs. Switch those off. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Bye now. Bye.